Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Money has a long history, beginning with barter and leading all the way to your credit card. Kirk Hutchinson founded Vote Protocol because he believes the next era of money is both deflationary and disintermediated. He studied history at UC San Diego and arrived at a libertarian bent after seeing the similarities between market processes and equilibria in nature. Inspired by the rich theoretical work on free money systems by economists such as George Selden, Frederick Hayek, and Milton Freeman, Kirk is working to put this theory into practice using smart contracts. If you enjoy this episode, please help us grow by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. So hang on to your hats. We're going to talk about where the future of money really is with Kirk Hutchinson. Thank you. Kirk, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Thomas and Trent, for having me. I'm really grateful to be here today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the Volt Protocol? Well, I've always been a, a history buff. Uh, that's what I studied in undergrad down at UC San Diego. Uh, and I got into uh, crypto originally through my interest in censorship resistance, um, you know, more of the kind of cypherpunk side of things. I was looking at things like Urbit, uh, for those who are familiar, and um, also things like mesh networks, um, cryptographically incentivized stuff like Helium or Althea. And that was what drew me in originally sort of um, in terms of like as a user, I was experimenting with these things and that's what got me interacting with Ethereum and smart contracts in the first place. And as I um, kind of got under the hood and started looking at how the smart contracts actually worked for things like Urbit's identity registry, um, it kind of dawned on me the actual potential there and that that was something I would like to work with. Uh, and that this was a, um, David uh, for Bankless put it really nicely, which is that Ethereum is a place where um, thinkers can start to tinker. Um, and so you can think <laughs> about <laughs> applying some of these historical mathematical type of concepts um, in the real world and letting people use them uh, more readily than in a traditional finance context. And so I thought I should get my hands on that. And I started learning how to code. And uh, at, at the time I had been, working as a uh, you know software freelancing kind of stuff along with history i've always been into tech I, I was in a robotics club in undergrad and i got to work alongside programmers mechanical engineers that sort of thing and you know i was doing just kind of web consulting sort of thing before i learned solidity uh ultimately i've come to the realization i'm not a great developer but it was good to have those <laughs> that right, foundation right. that skill set that got me and i did that for a little bit before realizing that i wanted to you know focus on the system design and the economics of it and that's what led me to Work towards Volt, and while you know on the on the can, Volt is a is a stable coin. What is the really um, core goal of it was the question of how you could build better governance mechanisms for allocating capital or governing the currency. Um, you know, I, when I was originally looking at these crypto systems, I looked at the lending markets that exist on chain today, and thought, well, how could this possibly scale up to support a thousand times as many assets, the kind of assets that exist in TradFi, without 
just being captured by committee rule, you know, and still be a robustly decentralized or you know, transparent market process, how these systems are controlled. Uh, and that was sort of the, um, the inspiration for me. And I've spent a lot of time looking at all the existing stuff and having fun um, being, you know, a user and dabbling in the projects that are out there. Uh, and also recently going, you know, a lot deeper into theory. Um, as you mentioned, George Selgin is one of my, um, my very favorites and also some older, um, older works and just trying to learn as much as I can about the current state of the world economy and capital markets and also the historical trends uh, in order to figure out the best designs that we can. So a lot of the the newbies getting into the idea of smart contracts are s still struggling with uh, good ways that they're being they can be used in the future. Can you give one or two examples that would just kind of light a light bulb in in a, a beginner's head? Absolutely. So, well, you'll have to to, to make it a simple example. Maybe you can grant me a, a couple premises. One is that let's say we start with two different assets. Uh, you know, so if you're on Ethereum, you might have ETH as one asset, and then let's say that. A separate asset is a stable coin, which is pegged to $1. We won't worry about where that stable coin came from for now. Uh, but you've got both of those. A smart, you know, traditionally, if you wanted to exchange between any assets, right, like you want to buy or sell stocks or you want to, um, you know, go buy a house, there's always going to be intermediaries. So there's going to be the stock exchange and probably multiple layers of intermediaries. There's the broker, then there's, you know, whoever is, um, you know, the banking relationships and counterparties that they have. And that's often not very transparent to the users and it's layers of fees. With a smart contract, you could just make a module that says, okay, here are the rules for the marketplace or how trades affect the price changes. And then anyone can go and swap between those two assets. And what's important about the smart contract is that everyone involved can see exactly what the rules are. And the trouble, the challenge is expressing things very clearly and succinctly in the right rules in a, the program. Uh, and so we had these early versions of what we call an automated market maker, right? People are probably familiar with Uniswap, yep. um, which lets you swap between many different assets. Mm -hmm. the, the first versions were a lot more limited as far as how many assets they could support or the range of nuance and the prices. They weren't nearly as performant as the centralized alternatives, and people will tell you all these problems with them. But over time, it gets better and better. Uh, and also, as the underlying blockchain gets more scalable, and there's these things like rollups, you can do more and more impressive and sophisticated stuff with smart contracts. But you can also really... Um, it can be a foot gun. You know, there's a lot of um, ways you can go wrong and do dangerous things with immutable code or smart contracts, too. So very much an early stage discipline. I often tell people that right now we're at the stage of, of when people were outside Caltech lighting off rockets in the gorge. And it's a far cry from when JPL is going to get established <laughs> and there'll be actual, like, you know, industry-wide safety standards and other things. Like, it's still the Wild West, but I think there's a lot of, you know, I've certainly seen tremendous progress all around in the last just year or two. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people with their nose to the grindstones innovating. So you mentioned that one of the problems with TradFi is that there are all these layers of intermediaries standing between two parties wanting to transact and that both incurs fees and also is a source of a lack of transparency in the ecosystem. So you don't really know what the rules are or how this transaction is being executed. And one of the advantages of a smart contract is anybody can go in and read the code and, and in theory anyway, know exactly how it executes, although reading code is its own problem. How that, that seems to me to be in tension with the need of the blockchain ecosystem to evolve user experiences and user interfaces around these products and services such that people don't have to go in and understand how it works. So how do you resolve those two things? I mean, ideally, in order for smart contracts to scale or any of this tech to really become socially meaningful, you wouldn't want people reading the smart contracts. You'd want them just using it and it works 
correctly, right? So how, how do you square those two things? My answer to that is that this is where we need to delve into the nuance. And people often talk about cryptocurrencies as peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. The question is, who is a peer? Uh, you know, not everyone is the same type of peer. Right. Not everyone is going to read smart contracts directly or even have their own crypto wallet and directly sign transactions. But the point is that because you can create structures that are disintermediated, that lets lots of new things emerge. And I don't think that there's going to be no intermediary at all, but it'll be a much more competitive free market. And who does the intermediaries? And it's more easy to, to create intermediaries. Or if you just, let's say the smart contracts are all out there. Well, if you just create a front end and market to people, you say, well, these are a set of safe smart contracts and we have our interface and you can, you know that everything in here has passed through our auditing and this is our like financial services platform. Or it could even be, people often think more about the individual use cases than things like business to business use cases. But to me, um, even just the ability for, you know, any two businesses in the world to directly settle between each other using USDC instead of going through our banking intermediaries is a very powerful use case. Uh, and so it doesn't have to always be just person to person. It could still be um, cutting out the really big middleman and still having your little specialized local middleman, could, uh, you know, cut out London and New York. Could, could you briefly sketch why that's such a big deal? So I, I've read a lot about finance and monetary economics, as you have as well. So the idea of reducing friction in transactions makes sense to me. But I think that just your average listener who's not steeped in crypto all the time might not see why it's such a big deal for two businesses to be able to settle between each other in a stable coin as opposed to going through the banking system. Like, why is that such a big deal? Why does that open up frontiers of new possibilities? Well, let me give an analogy that would make it very sensible from a consumer perspective. Let's talk about credit cards. Um, you know, when you when you go and swipe, you, I'm sure many, many people have seen things where there's a cash discount mm -hmm. uh, and they charge you less for cash than a credit card. And of course, that's because Visa charges a fee on the transaction. And some stores will, you know, in that case, they're passing that fee on to you uh, if you pay the credit card, right? And some stores will give you the option either way. Uh, and it's like a, you know, depending on the country, could be a one or two and a half percent even fee. Uh, it's not the same everywhere. Um, and it changes sometimes, but it's a, a very large fee on every transaction that goes to that network. Uh, and then when you think about business stuff, there are similar things that exist for you know other types of transactions and transfers that everyone might not be as familiar with, right? When you talk about sending money between countries or across borders, um, you know, there's the more different every type of company or middleman that it has to go through has to charge their take in order for them to exist. So if you think about like, you're someone living in, you know, country A, and you want to send money to someone in country B, first, you have to get your bank to send money to a bank in that country. But most likely, if you have like a, you know, if you have like a credit union or a small bank, they don't have a direct bilateral ability to relate to that bank. So it has to go through a money transfer network, which is established, you know, whether it's ACH, whatever it is. Right. Um, and all of those frictions, one, have some element of counterparty risk. Uh, you know, there's a chance that things don't go where they're supposed to um, or that, um, you know, s systems are, there's various degrees of, of safety or, or levels of wire fraud risk. But, um, yeah, everyone is very aware of the, the risk and the hacks in crypto, but there's, you know, wire fraud dwarfs that, right? You know, the number of malicious transactions that are going through and, and these things based on people getting duped into sending things to the wrong place or, access is getting exploited. Um, and so all that complexity, it's just very hard for one for outside companies to break into it, uh, and to create like a rival network. And two, for people to really understand what's going on. And that's true with a lot of TradFi stuff, like it's incumbent banks are very strong, it's hard to start a new bank, uh, Visa is very entrenched, it's hard to start a new competing network. And so 
I think a lot of what crypto tries to do and some of the secret sauce with the kind of incentives games that we play in crypto is trying to break through that and, and get a new network effect established. Uh, doesn't always go great, but um, the fact that the code is, you know, if not immutable, at least the rules for its change can be observed. Uh, right. So you know uh, the terms and conditions under which can be changed. And not everyone can, but the hope is that as the industry matures, a growing body of concerned people can. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen bugs out in the wild in smart contracts for a long time before they were exploited and found. So that's a little bit scary. And so right. one thing we think about at Bolt a lot is how the security need of the whole industry has to evolve and get a lot better. Um, but as that happens in the community of like really literate security, um, security literate solidity engineers grows, um, there'll be more and more possibility. And the contracts that are around for longer and longer can have exponentially more eyes on them. Uh, and ultimately you'll get these very, very secure kind of standard components that can be made very small tweaks to uh, and composed to do new things. And that's sort of what I see it moving towards is, you know, well-vetted and standard libraries and components being assembled into ways. And then it's a little bit easier for people to go through it and make sure it's secure because they already know, oh, this and this and that are all fine. So we just need to check these little changes. Um, a lot of things now are all different and ad hoc. Um, mm -hmm. So it's all these like diff completely different and very hard to understand code bases. And so you have to kind of spend a lot of time to be an expert in one of them, which is difficult for the engineers. Yeah, a recent article I read, uh, the title of it is that we need to burn all the boats. Um, and the the writer of it made the analogy of Cortez coming to uh, the new world and uh, waging war against the Aztecs. And one of his, uh, the thing, the key tactic that he did is he burned his own boats so that they had no recourse. They couldn't go back. And so everybody was fully committed then and they, uh, they prevailed over much, uh, a much larger army than, than them. Um, so the, the thinking was, is that people that are uh, working with Bitcoin or the, the Bitcoin maximalists actually need to live their life totally with, with Bitcoin. They need to pay all their bills through Bitcoin. They need to live their lives through Bitcoin. And my question to you is, first of all, is that even possible? I mean, do we have all enough tools to do that? And is it a reasonable thing to do at this point? So I don't think it's very feasible for most people today, but I agree that it's desirable. Uh, you know, from the perspective of a cryptocurrency advocate, I am, however, the difference between someone like me and a Bitcoin maxi is that I'm uh, in favor of taking what incremental steps we can to get more people into a more, you know, self-custodial or decentralized thing. I don't think everything has to be only totally immutable and perfect, right? I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. To me, USDC is great, right? They're, that's way better than just having, you know, you're, you're getting people on the chain, right? You know, right. centralized exchanges are great. They're getting people to use crypto. It's a, it's a step in the right direction, even though they have problems. And therefore, I think that there are a lot of efforts to make it easier to use crypto in a given, you know, it's, it's very different in different jurisdictions. Right, and the laws are always changing. People are, you know, bonking around the ban hammer um, a little bit frivolously these days. Uh, so that's a risky business too. And I think that we'll blink, and it'll be here. You know, in a year or two, uh, it'll be very easy to, in, in many many jurisdictions, to have like a crypto smart wallet that you have a credit card attached to. Um, I think we're very close to that. And I know that at Bolt, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to minimize friction between people. You know, putting their capital into Vault for their savings and being able to spend it in the real world. And we don't expect everyone to directly accept Vault, 
right? That means you have to get integrated with the existing payment rails first, and only later um, can you, you you need a lot of network effect to become a money, right? So like everyone in crypto likes to say, oh, it's money, Bitcoin's money, ETH is money, but it's a long shot from money, from people actually like saying, oh yeah, I'll take Bitcoin for my car instead of cash, right? You know, very rare, you know, it would be more likely to say that you have a crypto credit card where you can spend your crypto and it's routed through a normal payment rail. So I think that that is the first step. And having that kind of thing be ubiquitous where, you know, save in crypto, spend in local fiat um, is the first step. And then once everyone and all your friends are doing that, you might as well just send crypto to crypto directly to each other. Right. And that can kind of take off. Um, you know, I think that there is a path to that, but it's not a fast one. And um, yeah, I sort of have a gradualist mindset to real world penetration. It's not going to happen overnight, but uh, yeah, slow, slowly, then suddenly. I suspect that's how all commodity monies developed. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there, there probably weren't gold maximalists <laughs> in the first hundred years after people started circulating that as currency. I, I wouldn't imagine, right? I've or, never heard anybody call themselves a gradualist, so. Uh, an incrementalist, that's one I've heard. Well, <laughs> in, well, the libertarians, they've got the, the uh, incrementalists, I forget the other ones, those suddenists, whatever, whatever they are. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the people that advocate for, you're repealing the law slowly and not, you know, the big bang approach burning it all down you know <laughs> uh, that's a uh, that's fascinating are, are you following any of the projects like coin corner that are trying to build uh crypto payment systems that are entirely unreliant on the traditional financial rails uh, i was recently at a conference and uh matt white was there and he's one of the advocates uh, at coin corner and he gave me one of their bolt cards and gave me some sats and said that it, like nothing that just transpired in any way interfaces with the tr traditional financial system it's all lightning network it's all nodes it's all on chain and they're actually they're working on the isle of man right now this tiny little island off the coast of uh Great Britain to get as many merchants as they possibly can to accept Bitcoin. So it'll become like a Bitcoin island where you can use it freely as you would any other tender. So ho hopefully we'll get to see both things. Like we recently interviewed Patrick Friedman, right, who tries to go beyond the do we do it now or do it slowly kind of dichotomy and instead just says let a, let a thousand flowers bloom and, and we'll see what works. And if one of them works out really well, if there's a, a relatively stateless society or a minarchist society that functions correctly, that could just be franchised out in other ways. So maybe something like that will happen with, with crypto. I, I suspect that it maybe will be incremental and then very sudden, like gradually then suddenly in the same way that uh, Ernest Hemingway went broke. And th these experiments, <laughs> I, I think, are very encouraging for that reason. You know. Yeah, and like you said, there's there's a lot of jurisdictions out there. There's some countries that don't have their own currency and just use the U.S. dollar. I wouldn't be shocked if in the next decade there's a country that, you know, fully accepts all these different stable coins and you know digitizes all of its payment rails through crypto. Um, you know, something like Estonia, right? Who knows. Um, who that's going to be, uh, but there's lots of jurisdictions. Hopefully, there'll be more in the future, right? right. <laughs> if we're aligned with Petri Friedman, um, and I would like to see, um, yeah, more and more experiments. Hopefully, um. hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know.
We produce this show for you and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. You know, one thing that, that I have a lot of interest in is what the adoption of these crypto payment rails looks like in places that have a sort of like non-functioning state. Um, you know, and like I've, and what I've heard is that, for example, on the ground in Lebanon, the primary type of like crypto payments adoption is USDT on Tron, simply because that was the first one that became widely available. And now it's integrated with the money changers, right? And like, it's everyone knows it, it has a network effect there. Uh, and so I think that concentrated efforts in a certain jurisdiction to build up a network effect can be very fruitful. Um, so that's something that we think about at Bolt. Um, you know, it's hard to build up a network effect in the whole world all at once. Um, right, yeah. But if a certain, like on the Isle of Man, right, right um, <laughs> getting all the shops to accept it, right, that's great. And so, um, yeah, a more local focus for for bootstrapping a network effect. There's a reason that Facebook was started only for Harvard students, right? That was a, a smart call. Um, you just focus very hard on getting this initial network effect. And then others are like, oh, I like that network. Uh, we should try that here too. Um, so I, I'm a believer in that. I'm just not necessarily convinced that it will be a, a pure crypto rails that takes off. I think it's more likely to be like stable coinization um, in jurisdictions. Although, even though I, I, I'm certainly rooting for them, you know, I think that's awesome. But um, that'd be my guess. Tell us a little bit about Volt and what you guys are trying to do. So the the main goal of Volt is to encode all of the things that make a a bank in smart contracts. Essentially, um, you know, Volt is not a bank, but the if you think about what a bank does, it accepts deposits from you know savers and those who need to readily spend their money. Um, so that's the two types of functions: is the convenience of an easier to spend form of money than the the hard money. Um, you know, whether that was gold coins and you get dollars or whether it's dollars is the hard money, then you get your digital dollars. Um, you can spend it on your credit card and then you can earn some yield on your savings. And then on the back end, they do loans and various other forms of yield generation with that capital. And, you know, problems are that that, you know, your funds in the bank can be arbitrarily seized. Uh, you know, everyone knows that um, both in legitimate and tyrannical regimes worldwide, there's been many problems with that, or like having the whole country's balances seeds in the banks. It's very difficult to start new ones. Uh, they're only open during business hours, right? There's lots of problems with TradFi that smart contracts can help fix. And so what we're working towards is the idea of what I call a, a market governance system for um, deciding things like well, let me back that up and give an example of the closest, um, you know, like on-chain bank equivalent that's well-established today that people will be familiar with, which is MakerDAO and the issuer of the DAI stablecoin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, DAI is the most well-established decentralized stablecoin. It's backed by a mixture of crypto collateral, um, you know, over-collateralized loans, and also real-world assets and other stablecoins like USDC. And MakerDAO's token holders, the MKR token holders, vote on things like changing the parameters, like raising the interest rates on a certain type of loan, or what the debt ceiling is for a certain counterparty and things like that. And the issue is that vote-based systems really don't scale. The attention of all of the you know equity-like shareholders, you know the token holders of the Maker token, can't you know reasonably be for one thing paying attention to every single choice that's ever made within the, the system and secondly it means that the minority has very little say right you know it's very difficult to get a vote across uh and to get everyone's attention and everyone to go vote and so if you're not a st large stakeholder you don't have an existing voice and reputation um you know makes it there's various problems with this type of governance um and so what we would like is a system instead where 
you know, one of the key concepts of a bank and throughout history, not just under like a certain regulatory regime, is that the owners of the bank, you know, the partners put in some of their own capital and they also take outside capital. And there's regulations requiring a certain ratio between those, you know, where the bank has to have a certain amount of cushion on its books. Uh, and it is, you know, both morally, you know, good, you have to have your own skin in the game or else it will promote toxic behavior, uh, as we've seen with uh, some of the recent problems and certain crypto projects too, which we could talk about. Um, <laughs> and so what we would like is that, you know, a given, if you think about uh, a crypto system that has an on-chain reserves uh, that are transparently viewable, and that the token holders could then direct the system's capital based on their pro rata share of the tokens, um, you know, and their pro rata share of those that reserves capital. And so the smart contracts are a framework for saying which types of yield venues or loans can be granted um, and are are safe, and specifically allocating amongst them then can happen in a market process. So the goal, you know, this will be an iterative process, I'm sure, but the goal is to look at all these existing systems and say, okay, where are votes happening, and how can we replace that with free market decision making? Um, and allow that to have a scalable and open system. Sort of the way that for Ethereum or Ethereum validators, the transactions that they accept are a free market decision based on a fair gas auction, right? Um, people will try to say, I'll pay this much for a transaction or I'll pay that much and that will decide how fast you get in the block rather than like people voting, um, which slows down things. It creates room for arbitrary stuff. Uh, and so that's overall the the Volt vision and our, you know, our main product is the Volt stablecoin, which initially was intended to be a CPI, you know, inflation resistant stablecoin. And, you know, it's going to, I can get, it's a little bit of an embarrassment, but we've realized that a fixed rate target is a mistake because it forces the, you know, the bank out further on the, 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 the risk curve. Uh, and if you have a fixed rate, you'll always be in certain market conditions, taking unacceptable risk that could lead to total loss. And what we want is never to have arbitrary, like magic numbers in the system, but rather feedback between the vault holders and the, you know, the governance token, which we call VCON or the vault controller, um, such that, um, you know, for one thing, like a lot of stable coins are, actually what I'm, what I want to say here is that Smart contracts allow us to do a lot more than people would think of within consumer finance, including giving rights to people everywhere in the capital stack. So we can do things like imagine all the depositors in the bank could vote to fire someone from the board, um, you know, just if you're holders of deposits, not shareholders. Uh, and so within Vault, we can do things like when the governance token holders want to add a new yield venue, some of the Vault holders could veto that, you know, those types of ideas. And there's a lot of checks and balances that can be put in the system. Um, and it's a, you know, a hard problem to solve that is under active work, how the right feedback can be done from the, you know, the, the savers and those who wish to allocate capital um, such that the system is governed through, you know, the code and through the market feedback that occurs and the interest rates, you know, there's none of the like central bank interest rate fixing interest rates are, are market based and everything as much as possible um, can be handed off to an open process. As I'm listening to you describe that, it still seems like you're talking a lot about voting mechanisms, though. So is it really that voting's the problem or that you've got some way of distributing that power more broadly throughout the system? Because you said we want to we want to replace it with market mechanisms and feedback. But most of the examples you had is like, well, they can vote. They can veto a new yield channel or they can vote to eject a member of the board. So it still sounds like you're talking a lot about voting and, and that kind of governance. So what am I missing there? You're right. I probably got 
I was diving into what were the sort of unanswered questions in Frontier for me and getting a little ahead of myself. So let me <laughs> let me give the market governance um, take us from there. Square take one, us there. Is, one step at a time. So you know, I'm someone who comes and mints Vault, right? I'm going to bring another stable coin. Um, let's say it's USDC or Dai, and I deposit it into the Vault smart contracts and get Vault out. Um, Vault is not does not have a fixed peg to the dollar. Uh, it is dollar denominated, and it accrues the yield into the price. So, you know, you could get a, do- at a certain price today and the price would increase based on the um, yield that's accrued in the system. So you've got your vault token. Later, when you want to withdraw, you can redeem it and get stable coins out. Um, once those stable coins are in the vault system, the way that market governance will work, and this is not live on chain yet, um, is that an individual holder of the governance token could borrow some of this system capital and go deploy it into one of the whitelisted yield venues that's been approved. So let's say that that's a lending market like AVA, uh, an existing crypto lending market. Mm -hmm. You as the governance token holder, let's say that there's a total of $10 million in the Volt system and you hold 10% of the governance token supply. You could then go and direct $1 million of capital into the AVA lending market. And you will be earning a portion of the yield that's generated in that market and a portion of it will be passed back into the Volt system. you know, that which is going to the system surplus and the vault holders. And in turn, you'll be exposed directly to the risk in that venue that you chose. And the other holders of the governance token will be exposed to the risk in the venues that they've chosen. So in a situation where the AVA lending market took a loss and you were unable to repay, you know, withdraw and repay that capital, you'd be liquidated. So that VCON tokens would be seized and, you know, any remaining collateral would be withdrawn into the system and the surplus buffer would absorb that loss. Where um, you know, and this is trying to address some of the like tragedy of the commons problems that happen in governance today, and also um, making it so that there is a direct utility of the token. It's not an episodic vote, but this allocation can happen in real time. So anytime uh, an individual holder could decide that there's a better rate somewhere else and go deploy their portion of the capital there. Um, so it's a framework in which instead of centralized, you know, episodic votes being needed to make any change to the system. The holders of the governance token are incentivized to make real-time allocation decisions among the the yield venues, and then the various checks and balances and the voting stuff I was talking about before relates to um, the bounds and limits that need to be put on this process. Uh, and that's you know the thing that needs to be thought through very carefully. And what the devil is certainly in the details with smart contracts. But what's different about this is that you can envision there being hundreds of individual decision makers who do not need to coordinate with each other in order to make allocation decisions within the system. So it's a lot more scalable and decentralized than a, a vote-based, um, you know, episodic vote-based model. So if they just hold a certain fraction of all the Volt in existence, then they can make certain decisions which will impact the ecosystem more generally, but they're still on the hook for it, right? So you're trying to ameliorate the problem of moral hazard uh, by, by not That's right. presumably and- letting them get too leveraged or what have you. That's right. And to clarify, these are the holders of the governance token, which we would call Beacon, um, and the Vault Controller, which is my cheesy little name for it. Who knows? I might have to rebrand this thing at one point, but um, <laughs> I was all by myself when I picked the name. So Vcon uh, we kind of sounds like a, a meetup for incels. So like you might. Yeah, we might change it to MGov for the market governance token. We'll see. Um, Got to think about it a bit more. Uh, but that's the that's what's the key. And when I say all this stuff, I'm now speaking sort of like to the existing 
crypto landscape of what differentiates Vault from these other stablecoin protocols. Um, you know, what makes a stablecoin good in itself? Um, you know, it's got a separate question, but I believe that this market governance process will ultimately make um, something that's a lot more fair and open. Um, you know, like today, if you want to get a loan from MakerDAO, it's like, well, good luck. You know, you've got to make a proposal and you've got to go through the committees and then a vote's got to happen. It's, it's difficult to even know what you have to do or how long it will take, what the expense would be. Whereas with Vault, we want there to be transparent processes by which, um, you know, new venues can be evaluated and deployed and uh, which capital can be deployed into those venues and um, also by which system participants can object or prevent these changes. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in a decentralized um, smart contract bank, but that's the goal. And then eventually it could replicate a wide variety of the functions of a bank, including originating different types of loans. Um, you know, that's a little bit more complicated than in the initial version, we're focused on allocating among existing, you know, markets that are in cryptocurrency, you know, these lending markets that are on chain and letting the market governance participants choose how much of the system funds are deployed between those. But eventually we might look to developing our own tooling uh, to allow even more expressiveness of deploying that capital in the real world as well. This may be the sort of question that's almost impossible to answer without getting way into the weeds, but uh, I've, I've been following some of the drama with 3AC and Celsius and Luna Terra, and it's not to say that it sounds like you're doing the same thing. It doesn't. But, you know, when, when you get into the, like these questions about people owning fractions of all the capital and that means they can do these things and it can redound throughout the system in various ways. And it's like there's these complex feedback mechanisms and a governance layer that functions in, in on smart contracts. It just starts to sound like eventually somebody's going to figure out a way to drain the liquidity pools like they did with Luna and then short Bitcoin to the tune of, you know, $800 million and crash an entire part of the crypto ecosystem. Like, is there a succinct way for you to describe why this system is not vulnerable to those same sorts of shocks? Well, I think it's, a, first, the people should be very wary of smart contract risks and overcomplicated systems. So I, by no means do I want to minimize that. And um, we can talk a little bit about what our stance is on security and how we think about what it looks like to actually build one of these systems. But what I, I will note is that the truth is that there's nothing fancy or complicated about what went wrong with those systems. And that, um, you know, Luna was a fundamentally broken and bad model. And anyone who is not self-motivated to convince themselves of otherwise uh, and has a decent understanding of economics could, could see that. And on the other hand, there's smart contract risks where you have a, a hack or an exploit where it's a, just a very small nuance in the code where only a small number of experts in the world would be able to prevent it. Um, and you have things like, oh, the some of them, but some of the most infamous hacks are really the simplest and the dumbest. Like the the Axie Infinity Ronin Bridge hack was just, oh, it's only a few people who have the keys that control the bridge and it was compromised. Um, nothing as fancy as like, oh, there was a deep flaw in a mechanism. It was just a, you know, some guy had the key to the safe and he walked up to it and he took what was inside. Uh, and so <laughs> <Right>. there, <laughs> and so there's both. Um, I think that this last year or two, you know, there was so much money flowing around in crypto and so much hype. Um, it's naturally easy for people to get greedy and for voices to dominate the discussion. Uh, if there's so much noise, it's very difficult for people to filter through to the signal and find the things that really are or aren't good. Um, so that's one issue. And I think that just as the industry matures, um, they will be more recognized like leadership figures and common groups. Like, um, you know, there's already been talk, you know, between some of the 
um, stablecoin developers I know about things like common and jointly agreed risk frameworks where they'll do mutual ratings. Uh, and I think that these types of things will um, will be helpful, but also the field of smart contract engineering should be viewed like aerospace engineering, right? Like uh, there is no room for error. Um, there's no room for rush. Everything has to be triple, triple checked. Everything has to be done according to spec. You need separate security and build teams. Uh, and you need like, it's not enough to just have do an audit where some opaque firm gives you a check mark, right? You need to have a team where you sit down and you know go over it again and again. Any integrated code, any venue you deposit into, you have to treat as your own code because any governance change in that system could lead to an exploit. And so we at Vault have been working a lot on building up like our own infrastructure of security auditors where we can, instead of being dependent on a audit firm where, you know, it's 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 a something that everyone who works in crypto knows uh, for the past year is the common complaint of any project dev is you can't get good audit time. You know, there's only a few very well-regarded top-notch audit firms in the ecosystem. Um, a lot of others are just rubber stamps. Um, it's very expensive and it takes a long time to get time with them. So working on more peer review of smart contracts and also having networks of independent auditors. I just think that, um, yeah, a cryptocurrency project is not like a software startup. It's like an aerospace startup. Uh, it has to be done very, very carefully. Um, and you have to be very cognizant of the, the risks and a strong engineering and security culture is essential. And I hope that over the next few years, that will become just more the norm in the industry. You know, there's a lot of projects that I regard very well that have very great security practices. There's a lot of others that have terrible security practices. And um, as these exploits occur and um, industry leaders become well aware of who is doing a good job and who's not, um, my hope is that there'll be more watchdogs and clear transparency. There already are quite a few like public watchdog people who are on Twitter or other places who will be calling out those who are doing bad practices and warning about it. So um, giving those people more of a voice also helps. When, when you say projects, do you mean smart contract projects, stable coins? What do you have in mind? Yeah, any any smart contract um, crypto protocol. Um, you can call them projects. A lot, you know, because some of them are you know so-called DAOs. Others are companies. Uh, some are some blend of the two. Uh, but anything that is building smart contract systems, because um, yeah, there's no take backsies when you have code that handles a bunch of people's money. Right. Yeah, the site can't go down and go back up an hour later and it's fine right it's like no if there's a problem well, it's Car all over. what was it cardano that froze the blockchain for for a little bit and then turn it back on later you, you can't you can't turn the blockchain off the solana. <laughs> yeah. was it solana yeah, yeah uh, there's more than one but uh, okay. yeah solana was was infamous for that problem this year okay i, I don't want to impugn anybody if it was solana I didn't, I didn't mean to say cardano yeah this is this is such a wild west environment that we're in right now and lots of experimentation going on uh, lots of testing out of new technology. Um, if you could roll the clock forward 10 years, um, what's your best guess as to how, how many uh, survivors are still out there? And, um, and, and then what are they doing different than the others that uh, give them the longevity, that give them the ability to, um, uh, to, to last longer than the other alternatives? I think that zombies will surprise us with how long they can last. That would be okay. one prediction I would make. <laughs> All right. I think that in 10 years, there'll be a lot of things where I'm still shaking my head. I'm like, why is this still here? Uh, but eventually, right, the, <laughs> that is separate from the question of the, the winners distinguishing themselves, right? Um, there's a lot of things now when I look at it, I'm like, this is crazy that it's taken things like, you know, Ripple or Cardano. There's many projects where I, I think that it's just an overt, um, you know, 
it's a borderline scam and it's very strange that it's still very you know mainstream and popular and even listed on exchanges for retail uh you know, like in the united states or you'll see the kind of things that the coinbase exchange lists sometimes and i'm just like oh my goodness uh you know that's um but at the same time there are real businesses you know and you know business not in the case of a in the sense of a corporation but in the sense of a valuable service or product that you know, is sustainable in people's lives that are being built. Um, you know, I think stable coins, I'm biased, are a key use case there. I think decentralized exchange is another, although it won't look exactly like necessarily like a, a pure smart contract decentralized exchange. I think that things that are like intelligent hybrids of smart contracts and off-chain stuff will have a lot of value because just like how everyone uses a trading app and doesn't place orders directly on the New York Stock Exchange, not everyone's going to place orders directly on Uniswap, but they'll use you know, things that save them cost or bundle orders, you know, there's lots of things that can make things easier on retail or smaller users. Um, and then at the same time, there's this building legitimacy for institutions. So I'd keep an eye out at where, like, actually serious institutional partnerships are being done. Uh, so for me, I look at like MakerDAO, who's giving a 100 million credit line to a US um, bank, I'm forgetting the name of the bank now, I think it might have been the Huntington Valley Bank, uh, HBB, but um, maybe don't quote me on that. Um, and has done a big bond deal with the largest bank in France, like that genie's not going back in the bottle. Uh, you know, BlackRock investing in Circle, that genie's not going back in the bottle either. These crypto payment rails are going to get a lot bigger. Uh, at the same time, I never advise anyone to buy governance tokens. Uh, you know, like <laughs> a lot of it's the Wild West. You know, most people should not have been buying stocks in the dot-com bubble, right? You yeah. know, <laughs> it's, right, it's right. not something you should mess with. Um, but if you're someone who's interested in the future technology, you should certainly pay attention to the dot-com bubble if you're living in that time and go look at what's being built. Uh, and so, and often there's things that are just ahead of their time. You know, like we see the many, many cases of that now when we can look back at dot-com bubble companies and be like, oh, isn't this just like this? Uh, you know, I'm blanking on examples, but there's definitely dot-com examples of things similar to Netflix or Uber and just various things that were constrained by a lack of bandwidth or a lack of adoption of the internet uh, at the wrong time. And so as these crypto rails become just more generally adopted and the whole basic premise of it becomes more common, new things will become possible that weren't before, uh, even if they may have been tried. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah, what's that example you're always you're always using, Thomas? The the pre-Amazon, the Amazon from like 1992 that went bust and then almost the exact same thing worked when Jeff Bezos tried it like a decade later. Um, they were um, delivering groceries or something. It was a whole way. Oh, yeah. What was that called? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they spent, they spent li literally, literally billions on this, um, the grocery startup. Ah. And it got really, that cool. one will be in the show notes, I guess. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, boy, there's a lot of hype around that one. Uh, and they, they just couldn't quite do it. But then later on it, it more, Amazon's doing almost the exact same thing. It just, it had to be proved out first and the infrastructure had to be there and people had to be more comfortable with putting their credit card online and making payments on the internet and banking online and all of those things. And, and they just weren't there yet. So they were visionary and they paid for it. Uh, you you want to be like optimally visionary. You don't want to be too visionary because then you're just a crank yelling at the clouds and going broke, you know, but if you're visionary enough, then you can make billions of dollars. Uh, earlier, way back in the beginning of the conversation, you said that you were interested in things like system design and you specifically mentioned Urbit. Uh, in, incidentally, I think uh, 
episode nine we did with uh, Talon's CEO, Galen Wolfpolly. So you want to check that out if, if you're interested in that. But I just wanted to give you some space to riff on systems design and governance and economics and game theory and whatever else. So what's on your mind as far as those things are concerned and how does that interact with crypto? Maybe tie it back with crypto somehow. I'll give some context is that my, you know, my first system design that I was really into was like gardening and nature systems and permaculture design. Uh, and that evolved into looking at economics. And it's really the same type of thing is that everything is like natural selection and push and pull. So looking at where the kind of like feedbacks and competitive pressures are in these systems is, uh, you know, just a lot of fun for me. And of course, getting to poke and prod at them. Uh, and so Urbit, right, is an attempt at kind of rebuilding the computing stack from square one at making a you know, more decentralized platform for people to use um, and a, a basis for a different type of software. Um, that's kind of a, a bold and radical experiment. Um, what interests me, though, is how they, um, you know, when I first saw Urbit, I thought it was very interesting how they encoded, like, the networking hierarchy between the, um, you know, it's sort of like the, DNS routing infrastructure, but tokenized and in these smart contracts. So you can own the right to be a certain node in the network. Um, so I thought that was interesting. You know, just because you have tokens doesn't mean you have adoption, right? And there's a lot of crypto projects that, um, you know, have very fancy, intricate tokenomic schemes. But at the end of the day, right, like there's no such thing as a professional motion machine. Someone has to have a reason to use it. Mm -hmm. And with Urbit, actually, you know, there is a steady uptick in use uh, and, and real, real growth and real adoption always takes time. You know, in order to be, there's the old adage of like, yeah, secret to overnight success is first work 20 years in silence, uh, you know, and then, <laughs> and so um, one of the things that's, that's been on my mind a lot recently is just a few things, looking at historical currency transitions, you know, transitions between currency systems and using that to inform how we might expect these crypto rails to go, because um, I'm sort of, I don't have any clear answer to the question of, how could a successor to the US dollar be globally established? What would that actually look like? Um, I have some ideas about how it might start um, or what might be our next step from here. You know, I think that more decentralized and permissionless rails that wrap dollars is a nice step. Uh, it's like the super euro dollar, the stable coins. And um, I think that there'll be a lot more direct bilateral relationships between companies and financial entities in the world over the next decade than there are now, uh, thanks to crypto rails. So we'll see more of, um, you know, decentralized exchanges or clearing houses. I think it'll be big in things like foreign exchange uh, and international like bond markets type of stuff. Um, so, it, but it will also take a long time to for everyone to get used to using these systems. And when we look at transitions, like how everyone actually started using, um, you know, bank cards or these type of systems, they are usually pushed by some kind of powerful entity. You know, the US government played a major role in the establishment of, um, you know, banking cards and the electronic, um, these electronic and ACH systems. Um, if I'm, I might be scrambling which project was which, but they, um, you know, tied in social security, um, you know, like signing up for a certain social security payment to using um, one of these electronic systems that greatly benefited adoption. I think that was the SWIFT network. Um, but I'm going to have to check myself on that too. I'm as you might know, I've observed I'm I'm not very good with numbers and names, although I'm decent with concepts. So I often <laughs> find myself having to check my notes for, for like where what was that from again? Um, and so, <laughs> and <laughs> but that that general premise that just because there is maybe a better equilibrium doesn't mean that there's 
a smooth way to get there. And you might need a push to get you going, right. uh, just like the spark to start the fire. Uh, and so that's something that I've observed. And so lately I've been, when I first started on the Vault journey, I had a very global focus, like, oh, this is just for everyone. I don't need to even think about who the specific user is. And now I think more like we need to focus on getting Vault adoption in a very specific specific country or region um and just like you know we have el salvador trying to force bitcoin adoption on people i don't agree with their methods um but if you can find a place where the you know municipal or state authorities are open to experimentation open to change and then you can run incentives with businesses and you know i think that a lot of the the camp that i'm in within crypto has always been the very much on-chain decentralized camp but a lot of people there are purists and don't like to go the last mile into the real world but to me that's sort of one of the heart of the problems. And so when I think about like my competition and who I'm trying to outbox, uh, it's people like one USDC and circle, you know, these big centralized stable coins and two possible central bank digital currencies, which um, if you'll pardon me for waxing ideological for a little bit, I think are very dangerous. And uh, like subjecting money to political control is not good uh, because any process, and this is again, why I'm against, you know, that does it's either national or corporate political control, right? Either way is bad. A money system should be based on neutral rules that are outside of human control, ideally, right? That's what was good about the gold standard uh, and why <laughs> some people wish to return to it. Um, but once again, you know, you, once the cup's broken, you can't put it back together. Um, you know, it would take a, a coordination that doesn't exist to move everyone back. There's no natural incentive process that would cause everyone to coordinate back to a gold standard. Um, and so, whereas the U.S. sort of like actively caused everyone to coordinate to the dollar standard that we're under now. So I suspect that these kind of competitive private monies will actively make efforts to spearhead their adoption. And um, those inevitably, and this is where we'll bring in George Selgin, is that I think that ultimately where we're headed to is a more competitive global financial ecosystem, which is good. Uh, and that networks and interlinks will be made so that it's relatively seamless but uh, for a lot of users. But this competition will lead overall to more value being passed on to users and less, um, you know, less fees, less exploitation, and um, just the general idea of that in a society with a growing economy, there's no reason that your savings shouldn't increase in value uh, and that you shouldn't gain more purchasing power over time. Uh, you know, we have advancing technology. We have more and more and better stuff over time. There's plenty of room on the earth. Um, you know, there's no reason that if you have your savings in currency, you should suffer the effects of deflation or have to pay high fees just to access or spend your money at a store, right? Um, the idea that there's a 1% fee when I go to spend at the grocery store is kind of outrageous, right? Like it's a simple process that happens all the time, countless, countless times over the country. And if there's ways to cut out those middlemen and return that, you know, return 50 cents or 75 cents out of every dollar, I didn't up cents, five cents or, um, you know, 25 cents out of every dollar, spent to I'm, I'm really going to five or 2.5 cents of every dollar spent to the consumers and the workers uh, i think that's really a noble goal and so that's part of what you know a lot of crypto people say disintermediation is one of the primary values you know censorship resistance disintermediation uh, and i really believe that too yeah so we've, we've actually had quite a few discussions about the economy on the starship enterprise um and as one does yeah as as, as you think about, um, I mean, Elon Musk is planning on shooting a, a spaceship to Mars with people on it. And to think about, okay, how does the economy work on, 
this spaceship going to Mars, and if we actually send like a thousand people on a spaceship, like some flying ark going to another planet, uh, how would how would the economy work there? And are those people subject to the laws of Earth when that really makes no sense whatsoever? Because they're not attached to anything on Earth. Um, uh, it it occurs to me that somehow this abstract thinking about um, the the economy and foreign bodies ties in with what a new global economy would look like, and uh, and setting ourselves up for that might be what the actual next currency is that takes over and dominates um, instead of the U.S. dollar. Um, I don't know. Do you have any any uh, I mean, this is a really crazy-ass question to ask you, but does this tie into any of your thinking at all? Oh, it absolutely does. And um, <laughs> well, well, was, on the more nerdy lucky. joke side, I could. <laughs> but my wife and I were batting around the idea of an article called "Interplanetary Nakamoto Consensus," meaning basically that <laughs> you have to think about things like the light speed lag when you're talking about currency systems doing settlements interplanetary because it takes a few minutes, uh, <laughs> so you can't do instant transactions, right? Um, but that's that's more of a of a joke, but the, the real world analogy we can bring in is that for any colony like that, um, and for any like small or startup society, the key question is its import export balance, right? Um, you know, how that society thinks about money is to think about what does it need to import and what is it going to pay those people with? Uh, and so this is a, um, I've been doing a lot of research lately thinking about, you know, which jurisdictions can we focus on for initial vault adoption? And part of that is looking at how countries control capital inflows and how trade balances work, because uh, those motives are very tied up. So you'll have, you know, for example, in Argentina today, if you're an exporter and you sell goods overseas and you receive foreign currency, you are required to convert that foreign currency within a certain amount of time to the domestic currency at the official exchange rate. Um, and because, you know, they have certain obligations that they must meet in foreign currency. And so they do, you know, by hook or by crook, they've got to get it. Um, and so I think that a similar situation would would prevail in, you know, in this Martian colony and that, um, you know, the Martian colony has a limited supply of hard money um, that it needs to use for trade internationally. Secondly, from that, it has an internal economy that circulates purely within, uh, which is a little bit separate. Um, and a lot of governments and nations will try to manipulate that, that separation, um, you know, either to their benefit or the benefit of their citizens, not for me to say. Um, but one of the goal of crypto systems is to sort of remove that, right? To make everything on one global financial substrate so there is no separation between national currency systems. Uh, so that's the status quo today. And so you can imagine the difference between like a Martian colony that uses physical currency on the Martian colony and then deals with digital dollars on Earth and one that just uses digital dollars and they all have the same, you know, it, can an individual Martian citizen directly make transactions with an Earth citizen? Um, and if you can, uh, that's a much better system than, you know, you have to go through one you know martian bank so you can buy and sell things on mars but you got to rely on an importer uh you know it's difficult to get that earth currency to deal with um right. and so that's a problem in many that's why everyone wants the you know the the most usable currencies for international settlement which is dollars and you know maybe to a lesser extent um renminbi depending um and that's kind of the that's the key competitive dynamic in global currencies to me today is you know countries have import export balances and they need to um make sure that they don't mess up with this separation between their own currency and the, the currency of international commerce. So they get into trouble 
when there's mismatches between, let's say, their their debts and their assets. Uh, and so we have problems, certain countries struggling with that today, where they were holding a bunch of U.S. bonds, and then the U.S. raises rates, and so the value of their bonds goes down, and then they have debts in their own currency, and you know, we'll, we'll end up like Japan between a rock and a hard place of allowing inflation or um, having a bunch of companies unable to service their debts and go bankrupt. Uh, and so yeah, that is a a driving force, I think, for dollarization, and I think hopefully crypto dollarization. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. You've said that you're interested in a post-scarcity society. Can you talk a little bit about what that would be like? So I think that, you know, we shouldn't speak in absolutes. So post-scarcity doesn't mean there's absolutely no scarcity. But it means that the amount of the, the share of all human resources needed to sustain the basic necessities of human life is going to a vanishingly small percent. Uh, just like how the portion of people who work as farmers has gone from almost everyone to less than 1%, um, you know, in industrialized countries. And as we get more and better technology, you eventually reach a point where it should just be, you know, imagine a world in which there is ubiquitous nuclear power, um, such that electricity has a 99% reduction in cost from today. Everyone in the world is connected to the internet. Um, you know, all these financial systems are disintermediated. Automation has progressed by leaps and bounds, such that the amount of workers in average factory is down by 90% for the same output. Um, you know, these are all readily enough things to see happening in the next few decades. Uh, you know, each one might have its own timeline, but there's a lot of things coming together, such that, except for artificial scarcity, like we see in things like housing and healthcare, things will tend to get cheaper and cheaper until a certain point where hopefully um, we should just be able to automate basic well-being at the social level. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's why I am a, a pro-UBI individual, although not necessarily like um, pro it should be implemented immediately, uh, but that it is a natural direction and that um, you know, work has become more and more knowledge heavy over time. And so just like with these smart contract things, you know, like building a, a complicated math system really, really well could allow you to cut out um, tens of thousands of banking jobs and save bank depositors quite a bit of money. Uh, and like with all technology, the goal is not that those people are out of work, but that they can do other better things. And that's what tends to happen with markets. But it's you know my belief, and I think a lot of others, that we're starting to reach the point where um, you know a large number of humans, their direct physical work will not be worth a very large amount to other humans. Uh, because the things that, that they can produce with that work are cheap and readily available, um, whereas the things that they really want are more expensive. And so being able to make sure that everyone has those basics um, and then work and compete freely to get better, um, I think is a, is a good direction to go, uh, rather than like um, heterogeneous benefits regimes are trying to directly modify the costs of certain things in society. Well, that's fascinating. Um... Do you have any other thoughts you want to leave us with as we're wrapping up here? Well, just that, um, you know, I think that to anyone who's listening from outside of crypto, know that crypto is not as weird and strange as you think. Uh, you know, it's a lot like uh, regular finance and regular history. And that once you peel back the jargon, you know, just accept the jargon, hear it. It's a little bit, it can be inaccessible. Once you get through it, you know, you'll see that the one plus one still equals two, things still add up. And for people who are inside of crypto, 
um, yeah, read a few more history books, read George Selgin if you're working on a stable coin. <laughs> and um, yeah, just thank you so much for having me. And I'm always happy for anyone who wants to um, talk shop to get in touch. I'm one true Kirk on Twitter. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Kirk. Yeah, this is great. Uh, thanks for handling all the weird questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a great time. Thank you two so much for having me. All, and, right. Um, all right. Thanks. Yeah, have a great rest of your day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.